Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. All right, good evening again and welcome to the culminating event of the Biological Sciences Undergraduate Symposium, which is the public lecture presented by Dr. Michael Shermer, Why Darwin Matters, Evolution, Intelligent Design and the Battle for Science and Religion. As you know, UC San Diego is celebrating the 200th anniversary of the birth of two brilliant minds, Abraham Lincoln and Charles Darwin. And this year, 2009, also marks the 150th anniversary of the publication of The Origin of Species, one of the most important and, as it turned out, controversial scientific publication in the history of science. And Dr. Schirmer will talk more about this in a little bit. Uh, Dr. Michael Schirmer is a writer and historian of science, a founder of the Skeptic Society, and editor-in-chief of Skeptic Magazine. He received his BA in psychology from Pepperdine University, his master's in experimental psychology from Cal State Fullerton, and his PhD in the history of science from Claremont Graduate University. He is a monthly columnist for Scientific American, hosted the Skeptic Science Lecture Series at Caltech, and um, author of over nine books. He has appeared on such shows as The Colbert Report, 2020, uh, Larry King Live, and Oprah. As you can see, I really don't think there is anyone who I could better look to as a model for science communication than Dr. Shermer, and who we could have the privilege of partnering with in this pro-science, pro-evolution movement. That said, without further ado, I have the honor of welcoming Dr. Michael Shermer. Good evening. How are we doing? Wow, good crowd. Um, this is the first island Darwin stopped at in September 1835, the island of San Cristobal. And he uh, first slept on that beach right there. He spent the night there, so we did. And, uh, and then he hiked up into these highlands here. Oh, by the way, if you're in the back of the room and you can't see the laser pointer, it's right there. <laughs> okay. Anything for a cheap laugh. Anyway, so um, Darwin correctly deduced that that uh, island actually wasn't an island. It's, it's a Cerro Brujo. It's a volcanic, uh, was a volcanic island that eventually corrupt, uh, connected with uh, San Cristobal. The lava flows from here going down and from there going up, then eventually connected, and he figured that out uh, when he got there. So he was a great man, and um, actually since we have the opportunity here, um, two of the greatest Galapagos scientists to ever uh, study in the Galapagos Islands are uh, Peter and Rosemary uh, Grant, who were featured in the best-selling book, The Beak of the Finch, and they're right here in the front row. Peter and Rosemary, stand up and say hi to everybody. Come on. All right. They're, they're going to be bashful. They're speaking tomorrow at the uh, symposium, so be sure and, and come. So um, tonight I want to give you just a, a, a brief introduction of what I do for a living and then how this connects to um, the whole evolution creation Debate. Uh, so I publish Skeptic Magazine. We're a, a quarterly publication of the Skeptic Society. We investigate claims of the paranormal, pseudoscience, fringe groups, and cults, and claims of all kinds between good science, junk science, bad science, voodoo science, pathological science, non-science, and plain old nonsense. 
<laughs> Thank you. And unless you've been uh, abducted by aliens and been on Mars for the last few decades, you know there's a lot of it out there. Nonsense, that is. Bunk. Some people call us debunkers, but let's face it, there's a lot of bunk out there. We're sort of the Ralph Naders of bad ideas. Consumer advocates for good ideas. And... Uh, so in science, we're always looking for natural explanations for natural phenomena. Before we say something um, uh, like that uh, aliens traversed the vast distances of interstellar space and landed in Farmer Bob's field in Puckerbrush, Kansas, and made a crop circle that says skeptic.com as a way of promoting our webpage, maybe there's a better explanation. Maybe somebody with Photoshop made that fake photo. Uh, another way to say it is before we say something is out of this world, first make sure that it's not in this world. Again, this is a painting of Roswell, not a photograph. Uh, and uh, uh, we have to look for these kinds of natural explanations. Like, again, what's more likely, that aliens traversed the vast distances of interstellar space and landed in Sacramento, California, to help the governor in his bid for the governorship? Or that the World Weekly News just makes stuff up? Um, well, we have no experience or evidence at all of aliens landing anywhere. We have lots of experience of tabloid magazines making things up. So the likelier explanation, this is Hume's question, what's more likely when you're analyzing a miracle or an extraordinary claim, what's more likely, this explanation or that explanation? And that's one of the things that we try to do here. Another way to say this in cartoon version, my favorite cartoon from... Uh, Sidney Harris here. Uh, for those of you in the back, there's a couple of mathematicians at the chalkboard. He writes in here, then a miracle occurs, and he says, I think you need to be more explicit here in step two. <laughs> now, it's not that miracles aren't allowed in science, because there isn't anybody allowing or disallowing things in science. There's, it's not a czar uh, regime like that. It's that there's nothing to do with the concept of a miracle. By definition, something that's supernatural is not part of the natural world, and therefore we can't study it. There's nothing to do with it. There's no experiments to run and so on. And uh, that really is the basis of intelligent design theory. I'm going to summarize all of their arguments that I'll go through in detail tonight for you. Uh, but they all go like this. X looks designed. I can't think of how X was designed naturally. Therefore, X was designed supernaturally. That is what we call the God of the gaps argument. Wherever there's a gap... That's where uh, the intelligent designer or God or id or whoever must have stepped in to do the deed. Well, the fact that you can't explain it, it doesn't mean it's inexplicable. I mean, in a way, this is the argument from personal incredulity because I can't figure it out, therefore. Um, and uh, this is like uh, the people that think the pyramids were built by the aliens or the uh, lost continent of Atlantis, the Atlanteans. Um, you know, because they can't believe the Egyptians could have done this. You know, I can't figure out how they did it. I mean, they couldn't have done the dirt ramp thing or whatever. Well, you know, we call these, by the way, we call these people the pyramidians. Uh, I mean, maybe you ought to just think a little harder about it before you give up. And, uh, and so that's sort of an object lesson there. The, the fact that, that we can't currently explain it doesn't mean we have to then, therefore, turn to net, uh, supernatural explanations. In any case, even if you do... Uh, that doesn't get us anywhere. It's like when cosmologists talk about dark energy and dark matter uh, to explain the structure of galaxies and how they rotate and clusters of galaxies and things like that. But they don't mean that as an answer. That's not like, that's the answer. We're done. Uh, we can go golfing now. We have the answer. Dark energy. It's just a linguistic placeholder that says, well, we're not sure what this stuff is, but we're going to just call it that for now and put it in our equations mathematically, and now we're going to go search for this stuff. It's the start. The gap is where science begins. 
for the intelligent design creationist, that is the answer. The gap is, that's the answer. It's done. We're through. And that's why it isn't science. There's nothing to do with that, uh, ultimately. Um, so I go so far as to say there's no such thing as the paranormal or the supernatural. There's just the normal, the natural, and all the stuff we can't explain yet. And it's okay to say, I don't know. In science, that's all right. In fact, it's a great thing. I don't know. Good. Let's go find out. So this God of the Gaps problem is an interesting one. Um, in Newton's own time, uh, there was a problem that we might loosely call the problem of the plane. Why all the planets are in a plane? The, the plane of the ecliptic. They're all in this sort of flat disk going around in the same direction. Uh, at least in Newton's time, the planets were all there. You know, they're all in that flat plane except for Pluto, which is no longer a planet. So that's a, no, no longer a problem. And... Uh, and so Newton couldn't figure out how, using his theory of gravity, uh, how to explain why that would be, and the comets and so on. So he wrote in his greatest work, the Principia, Mathematica Principia, this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Now, I'm, I'm curious, why don't intelligent design creationists quote this? This is one of the greatest scientists in history from his greatest work, he was a deeply religious man who wrote more on religion and theology and biblical interpretation than he ever wrote on science. Why don't they quote that? And the answer is because we have a pretty good explanation now for why planets form around stars in, in big disks and how interstellar clouds of gas condense upon, uh, atoms condense upon each other from uh, the force of gravity. And as they do so, they begin to spin. As they begin to spin, they begin to flatten into disks because there's little asymmetries in the disk that become the stars and planets and so forth. So we have a, an idea about this. The gap has you know, been filled. You don't need that anymore. So why is it that evolution still stands on these lines of skepticism for some people? Darwin wondered this himself. He wrote in the second edition of The Origin of Species, I see no good reason why the views given in this volume should shock the religious feeling of anyone. It is satisfactory as showing how transient such impressions are to remember that the greatest discovery ever made by man, namely the law of attraction of gravity, was also attacked by Leibniz as subversive of natural and inferentially of revealed religion. A celebrated author and divine has written to me that he has gradually learned to see that it is just as noble a conception of the deity to believe that he created a few original forms capable of self-development into other and needful forms, as to believe he required a fresh act of creation to supply the voids caused by the actions of his laws. Now, that's 1860, so we're talking 100 in the second edition, 1849 years ago, and yet people are still struggling with this. So that's what my book is about. By the way, I should note that this is my first book uh, with full frontal nudity on the cover there, so... <laughs> You can get away with it if it's a different species because, you know, they're not really related to us. And that's, that's the problem people have of thinking of, um, thinking of us as, you know, one of those guys. Um, and uh, so this is the creationism of old. The ark. I thought I'd throw into this lecture, so I worked on this this afternoon from my recent trip to the new creationism museum in Kentucky. You know, there's an old one here in Santee, just inland from where we are here. Uh, but believe me, this, this thing here is a chicken farm compared to this museum in Kentucky. This thing is a $30 million production. I mean, they have animatronic models of Adam and Eve, for example. Sort of a Brooke Shields-looking uh, Blue Lagoon character with a... Uh, this is before the fall and then, you know, the snake. 
tempted her to uh, taste of the fruit, and then she uh, tempted him. They had a little roll in the had a little roll in the hay there, uh, and sin was born, and so uh, we had to have a flood. Um, and uh, so here's a, the a model of Noah's Ark. The animals going two by two. Except for that other passage that said it was seven by seven. But then, never mind that. Um, and uh, the ark is completely encased in, in so it can, you know, flop around in the huge oceans. And uh, so here it is on the, uh, on the waters. Uh, these are, if you, can, if you can see that, these are little people left on the last rocks sticking out, uh, crying for help like we went on. I call them the last of the left behinders. <laughs> and here's the ark uh, on another diorama. These are dioramas, you know, like about the size of a small room. Uh, And so the waters are now receding. Where did all that water come from in the first place? There's not enough water uh, to cover up all the continents. So to get that calculation, you have to have a canopy of water above the sky and water below. And so after the canopy of the sky, water comes down, then it has to go somewhere. So the cracks in the earth open up and the water floods in. This is on Mount Ararat, from which all those species radiated out and diverged in an amazing feat of punctuated evolution in the last few thousand years. And yes, there on the ark are baby dinosaurs. Because it turns out that dinosaurs were all vegetarians before the fall and that whole thing with snake, the snake and Eve and all that. Uh, and of course, I'm pointed, I, I was just being myself there at the museum and I got a tour from one of the directors and I said, but look at the teeth and the claws on the, this velociraptor. Oh, well, the teeth were used to crack open coconuts. <laughs> Okay. But then, because of the sin thing, dinosaurs became uh, meat eaters, and they killed the little baby dinosaurs and, and all that. Um, so what is this really all about? Well, as you wend your way through this museum, um, they get to the climax of the, the little tour there, in which uh, 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 it's, it's all about sin, original sin. Because it turns out, and I thought this was appropriate for... Uh, large undergraduate university like this, only one in three teens will continue to participate in church life once they're living on their own. So once you go off to college, that's where the downfall begins, because there in college you learn about science, and there you learn that there's no heaven, no hell, just science. Inside the crusade against religion, Bible versus science, dying on your own terms, this is a bad thing, Uh, there's Terry Schiavo, Anyway, this, this is a wall, you know, the size of, you know, like this screen. And, well, there you go. Uh, it's about the right fit. Uh, you know, gay marriages, you know, boy, we're really going downhill now. So this is the, the logic that um, the Bible clearly says the earth is, you know, created. Well, here, I'll give you the slide for it. There it is. In 4004 B.C., about the same time the Babylonians invented beer, by the way. <laughs> That's on that secular time scale, I was told, after I made that little joke. <laughs> there's two time scales. There's the secular time scale, and then there's the biblical time scale. And the Bible clearly states 4004 B.C. Well, no, actually it doesn't. However, you have to do some interpreting, which they do. But nevertheless, they, that's what they conclude. And so everything was perfect, and then everything fell apart. So, but it, it, if since it clearly says what they think it clearly says... Once you concede that that point is wrong, if you do, if you say, well, geologists say it's, you know, like 4.6 billion years old, that's wrong. And it didn't happen in that particular order, so Genesis is wrong. Once you concede that point, then 
the rest of the Bible is wrong. All the moral values are wrong, and therefore there are no objective moral values at all. And that leads to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and the decline of America going into hell in a handbasket with all those secular liberals uh, out there corrupting our children in public schools. That's, that's why they're worried about evolution. <laughs> Thank you, it's almost like I believed it. <laughs> um, no, really, that's what they believe. That's, I mean, why pick on, why pick on Darwin and, and evolution? I mean, you saw in, uh, in Texas this week uh, that they voted, uh, the legislation voted to include language in which students would have to be taught um, the strengths and weaknesses of scientific theories. Really? Like the weaknesses of the germ theory of disease? That, that weakness? Well, no. The weakness of plate tectonics? No. The weaknesses of uh, you know, gravity? No. Evolution, yeah, that's the one. So why that? And that's because it touches directly on us. And uh, so, of course, this gets lampooned in editorial cartoons where the creationist in the middle there on the iconic um, linear progress graph. Uh, here's uh, Kansas Board of Education as the clown in the evolutionary sequence. Kansas goes through a cycle of these uh, rewriting the science standards for their students. Um, here's a, you're now leaving Kansas. Uh, intelligent design, that's a W on that cowboy boot. Uh, this is over about the Dover trial, creationism in the disguise, the lamb's wool of intelligent design, being run by the monkey of the religious right, holding the Bible off to the school board meeting, warn the neighbors the carnival's back in town. In the case of Dover, uh, Pennsylvania, you recall that that's where the students were required to be read a single paragraph uh, at the start of the lecture on evolution uh, that essentially said, you know, there's other ideas out there like intelligent design, and here's a interesting book, Pandas and People, if you want to read it. That, it's at the library, you know, that sort of thing. So that's what triggered a lawsuit that led to um, the Dover trial in which the judge, Johnny Jones, uh, ruled uh, against the, uh, the required teaching of, of that paragraph. Um, and that was a huge blow because he was a Bush appointee judge, and he's a religious man, and, and uh, he called uh, intelligent design a breathtaking inanity, which is one of the great lines of all time. <laughs> You know, so here's another way of this, teach both theories, teach the controversy, teach both theories, chemistry and alchemy, neurology and phrenology, magic and uh, physics and astrology and astronomy. Now, I'll be teaching about intelligent design and creationism tonight. It's not that there's no place for us to discuss it. Of course, this is America. We have open discussion. You know, the bright light of sunshine is the best disinfectant for uh, toxic ideas, right? So... That, that's fine, but not in a science classroom if it's not science. Because if you let that in, then what about all the other creation stories that want to be taught? And pretty soon you're no longer teaching the science class. You're teaching a comparative world religions, comparative mythology. Fine, teach the creation, evolution stuff, and the intelligent design in those classes, or civics classes, or current events classes, or something like that. That's the problem, is that there's no science to teach. Um, 
I'm opting for creationism. I mean, what's evolution ever done for us? We're not exactly accountants or lawyers, are we? <laughs> Always the monkeys. Um, this from the cartoon BC. If man evolved from the ape, how come there's still apes around? Some of them were given choices. <laughs> well, the, the uh, artist, author of BC is a, is a sort of a young earth creationist, I've been told. And, um, but, but he's reflecting here on one of the standard myths about evolutionary theory that, you know, if we came from apes, then how come there's still apes around? And the answer is because we didn't come from apes. Apes and humans have a common ancestor. It's a branching tree, not a linear ladder. But the fact is we share 98% of our genes with our chimp cousins. Um, and, uh, and yet the myth is so strong that there, uh, are just, it's just pervasive in our culture. Uh, even in just skeletal displays, like in an actual museum, it's presented in that left-to-right format as if we came from the gorillas, which came from the chimps. So I guess that's an orang, which came from the chimp, or maybe that's a, well, that's a gibbon on the far left chimp. Orang, gorilla, us. As if that's how it went. And that isn't how it went. And that's very deceptive. And that's one of the myths people have. And it, very, it confuses them. The evolution of the band. It's used for marketing. I think this is a software company. Uh, another software company. Uh, social commentary. That's homo European unionists on the right uh, there. This is back when the debate about that was still going on. Uh, social commentary, again, social commentary, <laughs> the segue, more social commentary, <laughs> stolen by a game, pinball game company, uh, the myth is religious commentary, what does the Koran teach, reverse evolution? Usually the, the iconography is almost always left to right, which is interesting why we do that, uh, that it goes from old to new this way. It's just a convention in Western culture, but occasionally you see it that way. Or, and it's even jarring to the eye as if we're going backwards um, in time. And, of course, that was the theme of the Planet of the Apes, which turned out once he got there that, uh, in fact, it was our own evolution that went backwards, as it were. Um, but in fact, the real uh, story begins with Darwin's own first uh, earliest writings on this in the 18, late 1830s, after he returned from the Voyage of the Beagle in 1836, opened a notebook and sketched, I think, uh, that it's more like a tree, a branching tree rather than a linear ladder of progress. Um, and so in The Origin of Species, uh, in the first edition, there's a fold-out comes out about that big that looks like that. It's a richly branching tree. And that's how uh, Ernst Haeckel initially uh, illustrated it in his popularized version of the theory for Darwin in the continent, on the continent. Uh, and that's a more accurate picture than his later one in which he, he put us at the pinnacle um, of uh, mammalian and primate evolution with, you know, there we are right at the top. And again, that's so deceptive because it kind of implies that we're, that, that, that evolution is moving toward us in some teleological, inevitable, goal-directed way. It's just not, not how it works. Uh, in fact, we're just you know, one tiny twig here, and that's just of the animals um, from a modern version. Uh, and that is one of the ways we know that evolution happened, was the rich fossil record we have. Um, and I call this the fossil fallacy, or the fact uh, that uh, one, one fact is not a science make. This comes from my initial first debate I did with Dwayne Gish, one of the young earth creationists, in which uh, uh, he was talking, I, I knew his, 
his slides would include something about whales, you know, from cows to whales, an utter failure. <laughs> uh, and uh, so he just show me one transitional fossil. Shermer, he says this to whoever he's debating. Show me one transitional fossil. That particular week, uh, the discovery of Ambulocetus natans, a beautiful transitional fossil in uh, whale evolution, uh, was published in Science. So I threw it up there and and this guy is so clever. It's like, you know, here you have a fossil, and here you have a fossil, and there's a, you know, a gap. You know, just show me one transitional fossil. So I go, there, Ambulocetus natans. And he, without missing a beat, he goes, now there's two gaps in the fossil record. <laughs> the more data you have, the worse your theory is. Right. Uh, in fact, we've got uh, quite a few fossils on the sequence of whales now. Uh, to fill in many of those gaps. And, uh, and the same thing with uh, one of the crea- uh, creationists or intelligent design creationists. Uh, m- more popular subjects is the so-called Cambrian explosion. Uh, in Darwin's time, this, the sudden appearance in trilobites uh, and other fossils was indeed a mystery. Uh, and intelligent designers continue to cite this outdated example and cl- claim that the Cambrian explosion is one of the creation events in the Bible. The problem is that when a geologist calls something an explosion, they mean it rather differently than we mean it in common use. Um, They're talking millions and millions of years. But even with that, there's still abundant Precambrian fossils, but they're microscopic and were missed until the 1940s. These blue-green bacteria, the cyanobacteria, came from rocks three and a half billion years old and uh, and are very uh, similar to modern cyanobacteria. From 3.5 billion years to about 700 million years ago, there was no more form of life more complex than a single cell. And the only megascopic fossils are the dome-like cyanobacterial mats, stromatolites. So for 90% of life's history, this was the planet of the scum. Around 700 million years ago, we see the next logical step, the multicellular but not skeletonized soft-body animals known as the uh, Ediacara fauna. And then at the beginning of the Cambrian, we see the next logical step, the little shelly, small organisms which are skeletonized but nowhere near as big as trilobites. And then, of course, finally we get to the Burgess Shale in Canada, the hard-bodied animals. So the Cambrian explosion, just the Cambrian part, took over 20 million years and much longer than that if we go all the way back to um, the earliest fossils we can find. You have to remember that most animals that die, they just leave no trace at all. So it's amazing we have any fossils, and yet we still have... Uh, an embarrassment of fossil riches, one of my favorite slides of the very young Stephen Jay Gould at Harvard, just going through the stacks and stacks of fossils just from his own area. But let's just take one, of, uh, one area, our own favorite species. Um, and again, a richly branching bush, not that l- uh, ladder of progress. Um, and uh, we have quite a few fossils, and uh, even this is a little outdated. I have to throw new slides in every six months or so with new finds. But, uh, you know, back to the last common ancestor between ourselves and uh, the last common ancestor with, with modern apes uh, about six to seven million years ago, and then Australopithecus africanus at three to four million years ago, Kenyanthropus at three and a half million years, Lucy at 3.2, Australopithecus afarensis, Homo habilis at 1.9 million years ago, Homo georgicus 1.8 million years ago, Erectus 1.5, Neanderthal 0.5, and then the sort of earliest out of Africa probably bottleneck population from which all of us come at about 160,000 years ago and which we and Neanderthals lived simultaneously for many tens of thousands of years and then they mysteriously went extinct and then the culmination of all evolution, there it is. So the question on the table then is, is life naturally designed or intelligently designed? That's, that's, that's the, the question. And uh, 
Part of the problem is the word design. It, it, they kind of hijacked the word. It's a good word, intelligent design. I have to hand it to my debate opponents. They, they really marketed that one cleverly. It's better than the word creationism. Everybody gets design. Wings are designed for flight. Eyes are designed for seeing. Yeah, that makes sense, design. I get it. Uh, it's one of the reasons they did so well. But what it's really asking is, is supernatural top-down design versus natural bottom-up design. I mean, Darwin's book was in many ways just a, a rebuttal of or a refutation of William Paley's 1802 book, Natural Theology. And uh, um, in, in that, he talked about uh, design from the top down, and Darwin essentially said, yes, there's design, but the design actually has a mechanism to explain it from the bottom up. There's an interesting pedigree there, by the way. Uh, uh, Adam Smith originally used the phrase uh, in the invisible hand before the wealth of nations when he talked about, he wrote a little essay about planets going around Jupiter as if, and they're held there as if by an invisible hand. Then he applied that idea to the economy and said, oh, it's like an invisible hand. And I think, because Darwin studied Adam Smith when he was an undergraduate, I think natural selection is in a way a metaphor like the invisible hand. Uh, and it's equally deceptive and misleading because there's no hand in the economy, at least there shouldn't be because we see what happens, uh, trying to control things too much. And, uh, and really the origin of species opens with a, the first chapter is about artificial selection, breeders, breeding pigeons, intelligently designing the selection process to get certain characteristics that they want. And then he transitions from metaphor to saying this is what nature is like. But in fact, it isn't like that. There's nobody selecting anything in nature. There's no intelligent breeders. And so this is the problem we have, again, in trying to get people to accept evolution. They, 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 they net selection. They think selection, right, like a breeder. No, no, no intelligent designer up there. So that, that's part of the problem. We struggle with language, metaphor, misunderstandings, misuses of words um, that we're still facing. Um, in any case, we know design is natural, not supernatural, in lots of areas of nature. I gave the example of the planets and Newton's time. Nobody frets about solar systems anymore, uh, or any of these examples of natural design uh, in the organic world. Uh, it, it's only when it, when, it, when it gets to more complex designs that the problem comes in. So we take like the whale's flipper is intelligently designed or naturally designed. Well, it does look like an intelligently designed flipper until you strip the flesh off and see that, in fact, it has a history. And the history you can trace in the skeleton. Why would a designer, presumably intelligent engineer of some kind, an architect of life, um, uh, use the same uh, structure for uh, so many different animals? This, the whole tetrapod forelimb that appears over and over again is good enough to get the job done. But it's not an amazing design, a remarkable design, an intelligent design. It looks like it has a history to it. Uh, and that's why we see in these convergence of evidence from different lines of inquiry, the hummingbird and the whale. What could get more dramatic than that? These, by the way, are not to scale. Um, <laughs> and the hind limb. Why would an intelligent designer put a hind limb in a whale? It's not even articulated to the bone. There's no connection. It's just floating in flesh. It does nothing. Um, there, you can see it there, held on by wires. Uh, or vestigial structures like in the Cretaceous snake, uh, snake uh, Pachyarachus problematicus uh, of uh, over 60 million years ago uh, had hind legs and uh, snakes no longer have those. Or the vestigial legs and snakes. 
and in whales. So the problem is uh, we can explain vestigial structures from evolutionary theory based on history. How does the intelligent design theory explain it? Things like wings on flightless birds, the human tailbone, wisdom teeth, uh, male nipples, the human appendix. I I did want to have one personal picture in in the slideshow. (laughs) Come on, that's my appendix there. Um, They often say, well, you know, evolution's not a science because it's not testable. Oh, baloney. You show me uh, some mammal fossils in the same bedding plains as trilobites in the Cambrian, and then we'd have a real problem. That would be a a big setback. That would be a, a, a bit of contradictory evidence for the theory of evolution, and yet that never happens. This was J.B.S. Haldane's famous... A remark about uh, you know fossil rabbits in the Cambrian. Okay, so uh, something like that—a a, a radical um, discontinuity in the fossil sequence as we understand it—and um, it gets worse than that for the creationists. That is, modern organisms should show a variety of structures from simple to complex, reflecting evolutionary history. Eyes have evolved numerous times of various complexities. Um, And likewise, biological structures should show signs of natural design, not intelligent design. The eye, in fact, is built upside down and backwards. Your rods and cones are at the back of your retina. They'll sort of layer in the back where there's rods and cones facing that direction, uh, in which there's bipolar cells and ganglion cells on top of those, and then all the goop and blood vessels and stuff, and then the stuff in your eyeball. and And the reason for that is because they weren't plopped in there you know, by Mr. Potato uh, Designer, they evolved out from uh, neural tissue, from embryological neural tissue coming out from the inside out, not outside in. So they show a history. In fact, that's how we know this convergence of evidence is a powerful idea. Again, back to that fossil fallacy, show me one transitional fossil. Well, evolution is not proved through one bit of data. It's proved through, you know, tens of thousands of pieces of data that converge. Just, like, take the different dating techniques, you know, uh, Creationists always think they can get you. You know, oh, I read this paper where you know carbon-14 dating is inaccurate. Yeah, well, let me see the paper first, and what were they dating, and what were the error bars, and you know, there's been hundreds of thousands of artifacts carbon-14 dated. You know, yes, there are error bars. The process gets better, and so on. But it isn't just carbon-14 dating. We have all these other dating techniques. So if it was true that we found that, say, the age of the Earth was uh, 4.6 billion and the age of the sun was, you know, 4,000 years. Yeah, okay, that would be a problem for us. But that never happens. Never happens. They're always fairly consistent. Yes, there's little variations from measurement error, but never these big discontinuities in the data that you would expect if the creationist or intelligent design people were true. So evolutionary theory is true, we know, because, well, provisionally true, small t. It explains how design happened naturally from the bottom up. Its convergent, independent lines of inquiry jump to the same conclusion. Predicts new findings that have been confirmed empirically. So life was designed from the bottom up, not the top down. Natural design, not intelligent design. Evolution, not creation. Now that's sort of the, sort of the end of the short version of this for, for kids. Then I get into looking at... That's my alien sound effect, sorry. Um, I want to talk about some of the background to why I think uh, people believe this, uh, what their arguments are, their best-case arguments. But first, let's just take, um, let's just take seriously their idea that um, the intelligent designer need not be a god. It could be anything. It could be a space alien. All right? Let's take that hypothesis seriously, which I did 
uh, with tongue firmly in cheek in which I called an essay in Scientific American Schirmer's last law, because the first shall be last and the last shall be first, or some biblical thing like that. And that is, any sufficiently advanced extraterrestrial intelligence is indistinguishable from God. All right, so let's say we go in search of this intelligent designer. Let's say it turns out we, we really can't explain the first cells on Earth. And, it, and we find evidence. Let's say there's a pod on the moon or something. Hey, there's an idea for a science fiction film. We find some pod, something on the moon or out in the desert, Blythe or something. And, uh, and it turns out that the... Uh, Aliens from the planet Vega, because I'm pretty sure I saw that in Star Trek somewhere, uh, came here and they seeded the Earth with the first uh, complex cells. And and then evolution took over, or something like that. Let's say that turned out to be the case. Uh, Well, that would end the the discussion on how life on Earth started, but it wouldn't solve the problem of how life began, period. Because where did the Vegans come from? That's what a scientist would want to know. Well, that's really interesting, and now we've got to get more funding from NASA so we can send a spacecraft to Vega to check out the aliens. But, but where did they come from? And let's say it turns out, oh, well, they were seated there from these Andromedan galaxy aliens. Okay, that's interesting, but where did those guys come from? And it's, you see where I'm going with this. At some point, you have to have a bottom-up natural process to explain how life began, unless you want to go all the way back and step outside of space and time and assume some supernatural entity, which is what theologians end up doing. But my point of this little exercise, thought experiment, is that what experiment would we ever run to tell the difference between a really smart alien that could construct life forms, uh, which we're practically able to do. I mean, um, uh, the other human genome guy, not Francis Collins, but uh, J. Craig Vettner, is you know this close to announcing the discovery, the creation of a new life form in the laboratory, self-replicating molecules, the whole thing. Well, if we're practically able to do this, think of what an alien could do that was only say 500 years ahead of us in terms of biotechnology and genetic engineering, or 5,000 years ahead of us, or 50,000 years ahead of us. You know, if we encounter aliens, right, they're not going to be like 10 years ahead of us, like they think at Roswell. You know, the Roswell aliens, the aliens came and crashed at Roswell and gave us transistor technology. That's what they think. It's like just slightly ahead of vacuum tubes. Wow! They managed to traverse the vast instances of interstellar space on slightly better than vacuum tube technology. And of course, you know, they're not going to be bipedal primates, right? With gnarly stuff on their forehead speaking English with an Indian accent. These are largely driven by, you know, wardrobe, Hollywood wardrobe restrictions. So... Uh, whatever they're going to be like, they're going to be so, so far advanced from us, they really would be indistinguishable from God. So even the search for the intelligent designer by looking for clues, I, I claim is a fruitless exercise that, that could never result in anything but finding an alien. So, uh, and, in other words, this gets back to the old uh, Hume question of, um, of explaining causality and, and simply asking, well, then who designed God or the designer? So if the world is complex and looks intricately designed, and therefore the best inference is that there must be an intelligent designer, by the same logic we should infer that an intelligent designer must itself have been designed by a superior intelligent designer. And by the same course of reasoning, any designer who can create a superior intelligent designer must itself be a super superior intelligent designer, itself been created by a super duper superior intelligent designer ad infinitum. So this is what Dembski says, intelligent design is a strictly scientific theory devoid of religious commitments. Whereas the creator underlying scientific creationism conforms to a strict literalist interpretation of the Bible, the designer underlying intelligent design need not even be a deity. Well, I just showed that 
that that's not going to get them anywhere. And in any case, they don't actually believe that. Uh, right? You just sit and have beer and pizza with them, which I have done, and a couple of beers. Boy, they really tell you what they think. And, and they, they're all, they believe in the God of Abraham. They do. They're, right? So, in fact, uh, Dembski himself said, Thus, in its relation to Christianity, intelligent design should be viewed as a ground-clearing operation that gets rid of the intellectual rubbish that for generations has kept Christianity from receiving serious consideration. Right? So they're embarrassed by the Dwayne Gishes, the Young Earth Creationists, the Silly Museums, and the Ark, and all that. They want to ta- place at the table with the big boys uh, and the serious scientists. And they're not going to get that unless they can appear to be doing real science. In fact, Philip Johnson, their sort of grandfather of this whole movement, uh, this from an interview um, in Church and State magazine. Johnson calls his movement the Wedge. The objective, he said, is to convince people that Darwinism is inherently atheistic, thus shifting the debate from creationism versus evolution to the existence of God versus the non-existence of God. From there, people are introduced to the truth of the Bible, and then the question of sin, and finally, introduced to Jesus. So, this is their MO. This is what they want. This is, they can't sell that in public schools, obviously. So... Um, enter their three big arguments. So I'll give you the three. These are all in my book, um, in the detailed arguments they give, citations of all their papers and books, and then all the refutations by scientists over the years. So the first argument, irreducible complexity. This is, comes from Michael B., a biochemist at Lehigh University. An irreducibly complex structure cannot arise by a gradual process of incremental complexity. All its parts need to be together to work, so it must have been the result of an intelligent designer, and he's the one who introduced the mouse trap. It has to have those parts to it. You have to have those five parts to make the mouse trap work. Oh, yeah? Well, here's a mouse trap with four parts, three parts, two parts, even one part. <laughs> this is from John McDonald's illustrations. Just because ideas can't figure out how it happened doesn't mean it can't happen. We're back to the pyramidians, and just because they can't figure out how the pyramids were built. I mean, it's just a pile of rocks, guys. I mean, really. <laughs> anyway, that's a different frustration. Um, their second argument, uh, the design inference. All right, so my favorite example, the face on Mars. The, the ufologist got very excited about this when the Viking uh, spacecraft photographed that, and there's been you know dozens of books published about the Martian monumental architecture designed for us to see the face. Anyway, so the kind folks at JPL, uh, when they sent the 2000 um, spacecraft there, they, they took an up-close photograph just to get those guys off their back. And uh, sure enough, it's just a mountain range eroded. But if you squint, you can see the face pop back out again. There's the eyes, there's the nose, there's the mouth. Uh, and by squinting, you're reducing the granularity of the data back to a coarse grain, like the first one, and then your facial recognition module kicks in, and you see faces, right? Everybody sees faces. So we know that's an artifact of nature, yet nobody would look at Mount Rushmore and go, oh, wow, look at the incredible coincidence. <laughs> okay, that's their argument, and that, that's a reasonable argument. I mean, there's an inference of design that we intuitively make, and, and we'd be right about that, um, and they, their other favorite example is, you know, Carl Sagan's contact and Jodie Foster with the earphones and the prime numbers come beeping in from the aliens. Clearly, there's no neutron star rotating black hole or anything like that that's going to pump out prime numbers. That's an intelligent signal in the noise. Okay, that's the argument. 
Um, so Dembski's own little graph here that you, you start there on the left uh, with whatever it is you want to explain. Is it highly probable? If no, you go down to the next one. If yes, highly probable, it's probably due to law. If it's intermediate probability, you then uh, ask if it's possible by chance, and if yes, then, it, well, then it's chance. But if it's a specified, if it's a very low probability event, it's very specified, um, then we would infer that uh, if it's not specified, then it's chance. If it is specified, then you infer design. Okay, so he has a whole book about this. It, it goes on and on, very, uh, very detailed. The problems with the explanatory filter uh, are this. It assumes probabilities that cannot be determined in practice. How would you apply that to, say, DNA? What's the algorithm you're going to use to say that uh, below that level we'll say it's law and chance, above that level we'll say it's design? Two, to eliminate all necessity and chance explanations, assume that we know all the configurations of them for whatever natural thing you want to talk about, wings or eyes or whatever. We don't. Intelligent design is not simply the elimination of necessity and chance in any case. Remember the law of the excluded middle. You can't just debunk the other guy's idea. You can't say, well, theory A is wrong, therefore my, my theory is right. You actually have to have positive evidence in favor of your theory, not just that law and chance doesn't explain that. And four, by the logic of the explanatory filter, we should apply it to the design's designer. And here we go, back to that argument again. If necessity and chance are rejected for the design's designer, the conclusion is that the design's designer was designed. And finally, the ultimate answer to the design inference is to provide a cogent theory of natural design. And we have that. We know languages are designed from the bottom up, not the top down. I mean, no one designed English to sound the way it does today, 500 years ago, where... You know, by where I live, they use the word like every three words. Um, markets and economies are designed from the bottom up, not the top down. The universe itself is self-organized. Water is a self-organized emergent property of hydrogen and oxygen. Consciousness is a self-organized emergent property of billions of neurons firing in patterns. Complex life itself is a self-organized emergent property of simpler life. Prokaryote cells evolved into eukaryote cells, at least a few except Lynn Margulis's theory of symbiogenesis, which I do, and I think there's a, a workable model there of a nice, gradual Darwinian sequence and um, complexity. And finally, I think their best argument, uh, the fine-tuned anthropic principle, that is, um, you can find plenty of you know, world-class scientists who are not at all creationists. They may even be atheists, oh my gosh. Uh, like Sir Martin Rees in his book, Just Six Numbers, where he talks about the amazing sort of fine-tunedness of the universe, like omega, one, the amount of matter in the universe, such that if omega was greater than one, it would have collapsed long ago. And if omega was less than one, no galaxies would have formed. You have to have just the right amount of stuff. Two, epsilon, 0 0.007. That is how firmly atomic nuclei bind together, such that if epsilon were 0 0.006 or 0 0.008, matter could not exist as it does. Not just that there'd be some other life form. You couldn't even get atoms to be structured, and therefore no molecules. Uh, three dimensions, obviously you have to have three dimensions, not two or four. Uh, N is the, uh, 10 to the 36, the ratio of the strength of gravity to that of electromagnetism, such that if it had just a few less zeros, the universe would be too young and too small for life to evolve. Life takes, to get to intelligent life, it takes you know, billions of years, so you have to have a universe that evolves along for, for quite a while. Q, 1 over 100,000, the fabric of the universe, such that if Q were smaller, the universe would be featureless, and if Q were larger the universe would be dominated by giant black holes. So you have this delicate balance in the fabric of the universe so you can get stars and planets and therefore life on planets. And then finally, lambda, 
Point seven, the cosmological constant or the anti-gravity force that is causing the universe to expand at an accelerating rate, such that if Lambda were larger, it would have prevented stars and galaxies from forming. Okay, there's nothing particularly controversial about those. These are not numbers claimed by creationists. Uh, these are just standard. All physicists know about these. Okay, so what's our explanation? What's our, how do we respond to that? Well, one, the universe isn't so finely tuned, is it? Only a few regions of the universe are hospitable to life. Um, and most of these um, are only for a brief history uh, during the history of the universe. So, in fact, due to the accelerating expansion, as billions of years of, uh, go by, life will have a harder and harder time surviving. So this idea that somehow, boy, God made this universe just for us, boy, it's so hospitable. Uh, no, actually, it isn't. There's hardly any places you could live. Okay, well, they have a rebuttal to that. Yeah, that's right. That's a miracle. Earth, that's it. Okay. Um, well, that's why... Kepler, the new spacecraft, is going to be so important. How many Earth-like planets are there? Probably a lot, but we'll see. Two, um, well, different physics, different life. I mean, Sagan used to say we're carbon chauvinists. You know, we, we're so locked into the, our own biochemistry that uh, perhaps different universes or a different configuration of the laws and constants of our universe could produce a different kind of life. You know, we don't know that much. We're not omniscient, right? So carbon chauvinists. hard for us to think of other kinds of life. Um, Steven Weinberg uh, tells me that, in fact, he's not particularly worried about it because he thinks there might be an underlying principle behind all the fine-tuned equations and relationship that will be forthcoming when the grand unified theory of physics is discovered. Not six mysterious numbers, just one. You know, the one on the T-shirt, the, the single equation. That's it. That's the only mystery we've got to explain. Well, okay, you can still use that for a God argument. Yes, it's true. But, but maybe there aren't a whole suite of these problems. Maybe, there, maybe there's just one. Um, my my uh, favorite answer to it is um, the multiverse. That is the multiverse in a way, multiple bubble universes with different laws of nature. In other words, the next natural step from in our sort of history of cosmology, this is sort of a history of science argument, um, it begins with the Earth as the entire universe with God just outside looking in. This wasn't that long ago, back when the Babylonians were drinking beer, and that's, you know, that was their cosmology. Um, and that, that is, in fact, this is the Babylonian cosmology, which, by the way, the Hebrews adopted under the Babylonian captivity, which is what Genesis 1 through 14 is. It's Babylonian cosmology. And you can see, the, you can see the, the canopy. There's the water that opens up in these little holes and the flood and all that. To the Earth-centered uh, solar system as the entire universe. To the Sun-centered solar system as the entire universe. Universe. This is the Ptolemaic system, the Copernican system, and this is Tycho Brahe's modified version. It's kind of interesting, actually. You got, uh, well, anyway, I won't, I won't get into all that, but it was wrong. So. <laughs> to the Milky Way is the entire known universe in 1903. This picture is from uh, Alfred Russell Wallace's book. Alfred Russell Wallace, a co discoverer of natural selection with Darwin, wrote a book in 1903 that basically argued we're alone. We're alone, he said, because the universe is pretty small. Look, it's only. The radius is only 1,200 light years. It's, it's pretty small. There can't be that many planets, and to get from bacteria to big brain takes a long time with a lot of little things that have to happen. And the chances of that happening somewhere else are so slim, he concluded we're alone in the universe. The entire universe in 1903 was 1,200 light years in radius. That's pretty small. In 1923, Hubble, finally using the 100-inch telescope right up on Mount Wilson above my house in Pasadena there, 
um, found the first variable. These are um, Cepheid variable stars that uh, predictably expand and contract, and so you can measure their light consistently, and they become a standard candle, so you can know exactly how far away they are. And he had been working on new technologies with the 100-inch Uh, at Mount Wilson to finally identify them in another one of these little fuzzy patches that everybody thought were probably in the Milky Way galaxy, these so-called nebula. And he was the first to show that, in fact, these Cepheid variables were inside those patches but far away, not within tens of thousands of light years within our universe, but in some other universe. They called these island universes. We call them galaxies. That's just 1923. That's not that long ago. To the steady state universe of the 1950s, to the Big Bang beginning, uh, accelerating, expanding universe to today. And just look at the kind of the sequence in, uh, in slides of, of just how much grander our scope of perspective on the universe has become from the Earth to the Earth Moon to our own little solar system to our solar system with a Kuiper belt that going that spans further out. The Voyager spacecraft, by the way, the two of them hurtling along at 70,000 miles an hour, won't get to the next star for about 70,000 years if they were going to the closest one, and they're not. That's a long time to sit there with your tray table down and your seat back back. I mean, this is why the aliens haven't come here. It's mostly just empty space. There's nothing out there uh, for the longest time. And, uh, and so our Oort cloud of of um, comets way, way out there. The nearest stars, again, if the Voyager spacecraft were going there to Alpha Centauri and Proxima Centauri, they're not that far away. They're only a few light years away. But again, at that speed, it would still take 70,000 years. Um, To our local group of stars, so now we're just talking about a few tens of light years, to a few hundred light years of where we begin to see some little bit of structure in our galaxy, uh, until we can finally make out a few of the belts in the arms of our own little galaxy there to the galaxy itself, which looks a lot like the Andromeda galaxy. When we look at it, it's similar to what the Milky Way galaxy probably looks like. Obviously, we don't have any pictures of it because we're in it. Uh, to uh, just our local, um, just the local smallest galaxies around here, like this, the larger than small Magellanic clouds you can see from the southern hemisphere. So we're talking about uh, a few hundreds of thousands of light years to the Andromeda galaxy that Hubble first looked at, it was just, it's relatively close actually by standards, but back in 23, that was a long ways away. We're talking several million light years away to the local cluster of galaxies, to the supercluster of galaxies, to the entire known universe at about 13.7 billion years. So when we talk about that, it's really just time. It's, that's how long it took the light to get here. Um, so the next natural step then would be multiple bubble universes. Okay, we don't have any evidence for the multiverse yet, but here's the argument. That different universes will have different laws of nature. Any universes that have laws of nature like ours that give rise to planets, stars and planets and so on, some stars will have will become black holes. And when black holes collapse, they collapse into a singularity, a, an infinitely dense point. Well, if Hawking is right that 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 this is how the universe might have begun, at a single point of singularity and exploded into a big bang out of the quantum foam fluctuation, it's possible that when stars collapse into black holes, they create other universes. Maybe. And those universes then will give rise, give birth to universes that have laws of nature that give rise to stars, and therefore they'll have more universes like that. They'll have baby universes. They'll be, it's a Darwinian 
selection process. And those universes that don't have laws of nature that give rise to matter won't have stars, they won't get black holes, they won't have baby universes. They'll go extinct. This is Lee Smolin's idea. His book is called The, uh, the Life of the Cosmos. It's a Darwinian explanation. Okay, we don't have proof of it yet. But you have to remember, the other side has no proof either. So if we're speculating anyway, it's okay to at least try to ground it in something like science. Um, uh, and so, um, in conclusion, science tells us that we are but one among hundreds of millions of species that evolved over the course of three and a half billion years on one tiny planet among many orbiting an ordinary star, itself one of possibly billions of solar systems in an ordinary galaxy that contains hundreds of billions of stars, itself located in a cluster of galaxies not so different from millions of other galaxy clusters, themselves whirling away from one another in an accelerating and expanding cosmic bubble universe that very possibly is only one among a near infinite number of bubble universes. To believe that this entire cosmological multiverse was designed and created for one tiny subgroup of a single species on one planet in a lone galaxy in that solitary bubble universe is anthropocentrically absurd. Instead, science elevates us all to a higher plane of humanity and humility that we are in this limited time and space together, a momentary proscenium in the drama of the cosmos. And I'll just read the last paragraph from Why Darwin Matters. Um, so herein lies the spiritual side of science. It's sciential,ity if you'll pardon an awkward neologism, but one that echoes the sensuality of discovery. If religion and spirituality are supposed to generate awe and humility in the face of the Creator, what could be more awesome and humbling than the deep space discovered by Hubble and the cosmologists in the deep time discovered by Darwin? and the evolutionist. Darwin matters because evolution matters. Evolution matters because science matters. And science matters because it is the preeminent story of our age, an epic saga about who we are, where we came from, and where we're going. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.